Welcome to the Beyond the Pearls podcast, based on the Morning Report series from Elsevier. This podcast has been adapted for audio in collaboration with series editor Dr. Raj Dasgupta, as well as the volume editor for each book. Each episode features an in-depth case dissection format and aims to deliver practical, concise, and easy-to-digest information. And now, here's today's episode. Hi everyone, this is Brian Wong, and welcome to the Beyond the Pearls podcast. Today we're talking about bacterial meningitis. If you're following along in your book, this is case number 14, entitled A 60-Year-Old Male with Acute Headache and Fever. So the case begins where we have a 60-year-old male that presents to the emergency department with acute onset of a severe headache associated with subjective fever. He's also reporting a stiff neck. What medical emergency must we consider in this patient based solely on these initial symptoms? We must consider the infectious diagnosis of bacterial meningitis as part of the overall differential. Patients with acute bacterial meningitis usually present with some combination of headache, usually greater than 85% of the time, fever, usually greater than 80% of the time, nuchal rigidity or stiff neck, also greater than 80% of the time, and altered mental status, greater than three quarters of the time. Nuchal rigidity or stiff neck is the hallmark sign of irritated meninges and can be demonstrated when the neck resists passive flexion. The patient is presenting with three of the four mentioned signs and symptoms, therefore favoring a diagnosis of acute meningitis. Nausea, vomiting, and photophobia are other common components of the presentation. Now keep in mind that a higher level of suspicion is required to diagnose bacterial meningitis in the elderly and immunocompromised patients. These patients can have an atypical presentation with fever, and an abnormal neurologic exam with lethargy serving as the main clinical manifestation. The clinical pearl for you is that the classic triad of fever, nuchal rigidity, and altermental status was only found in two-thirds or 66% of patients with acute bacterial meningitis, not all of them. However, all cases of meningitis had at least one of the findings. An absence of all three findings nearly rules out acute meningitis. So what factors should be considered when evaluating the cause of a patient's suspected meningitis? The list of organisms that can cause meningitis is long and can be daunting, but conducting a thorough history can sometimes help narrow the differential diagnosis. Assessing the patient's immune status is paramount as certain immunodeficiencies can predispose patients to distinct opportunistic pathogens. For example, the elderly, often considered greater than 50 years old, diabetics, alcoholics, pregnant patients, patients on immunosuppressive medications, and those with impaired cell-mediated immunity are more susceptible to listeria monocytogenes, meningitis. Patients with human immunodeficiency virus, or HIV, have a significantly increased risk of cryptococcus neoformans meningitis. The presence of other risk factors, independent of the patient's immune status, can also assist with the evaluation. For example, patients with recent head trauma or neurosurgical procedures are at greater risk for infections with staphylococcal species, Haemophilus influenza, and nosocomial gram-negative rods. 
Certain elements from the history of present illness or other past medical history can also help elucidate the cause. A clinical picture of recent or active pneumonia, otitis media, sinusitis, or cerebrospinal fluid, CSF leak, can point towards a diagnosis of strep pneuma. History of herpes may place herpes simplex virus, HSV meningitis, or encephalitis higher on the differential. Recent constitutional symptoms suggesting upper respiratory tract infections or a viral gastroenteritis should prompt one to think of other more common causes of viral meningitis, such as enteroviruses. Certain elements of the social history can be very helpful. High-risk sexual behavior should prompt one to include syphilis or acute HIV infection in the differential diagnosis as well. Recent tick exposure should alert one to the possibility of Lyme disease, human granulocytic anaplasmosis, or HGA, ehrlichiosis, HGE, or Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever. Recent mosquito bites can be a clue for meningitis or encephalitis from arboviruses such as West Nile virus, St. Louis encephalitis, or Eastern Equine virus. Recent contact with sick children makes enterovirus meningitis a higher possibility. Coccidial meningitis should be considered in patients with recent travel to certain regions of the southwestern U.S. with high endemicity or this soil-dwelling fungus. There have been even outbreaks of Neisseria meningitidis in crowded living conditions such as dormitories and military barracks. Now let's pause for a couple of clinical pearls. The first one being, patients without a functional spleen are at increased risk of infection with encapsulated bacteria, such as Streptococcus pneumoniae, Neisseria meningitidis, and Haemophilus influenzae. Patients with deficiencies in terminal complement are predisposed to recurrent Neisseria meningitidis bacteremia, and rarely meningitis. The second clinical pearl is that a rash occurs in about 50% of patients with meningococcemia, independent of the presence or absence of meningitis, and it begins as a diffuse macular rash that involves, evolves rapidly into petechiae and purpura. Lesions occur on the trunk, lower extremities, mucous membranes, and occasionally on the palms and soles. In the book, you can see it as figure 14.1. Now, returning to our case, further history is obtained. The patient denies similar headaches in the past and has not been recently ill. He does have a past medical history of well-controlled hypertension, and his surgical history is significant for splenectomy. Aha! due to a ruptured spleen from a motor vehicle accident 30 years prior. On review of systems, he denies nausea or vomiting, chest pain, cough, shortness of breath, or any other significant complaints. On physical exam, temperature is 39 degrees Celsius or 102.4 Fahrenheit, pulse 110 per minute, blood pressure is 120 over 80 millimeters of mercury, Respiration rate is 18 per minute, and oxygen saturation is 95% on room air. He is awake but appears fatigued and in mild distress. Cardiac exam is notable for tachycardia. His lungs are clear, and abdominal exam is unremarkable. He resists passive flexion of his neck and has mild photophobia. He has no rash, no papilledema, and the neurologic exam shows no focal deficits. Kurdnig's and Brzezinski's signs are negative. 
Speaking of Kurdnik's and Brzezinski's signs, what are Kurdnik's and Brzezinski's signs? And how reassuring is it that they are normal in this patient? Well, Kurdnik's and Brzezinski's signs are used to test for meningeal irritation. To elicit Kurdnik's signs, while the patient is supine, the practitioner passively flexes the patient's hip at 90 degrees and passively extends the knee from a 90 degree flex position. The test is considered positive when the patient resists the straightening of the knee due to pain. Brzezinski's sign involves flexing the neck of a patient who is supine. The test is considered positive if the patient reflexively flexes the hips or knees due to pain. A positive Kurdnigs or Brzezinski sign can help point toward meningitis, but a negative test does not rule it out, as the sensitivity of these maneuvers is only about 5%, pretty poor. So a positive test may help you, negative test doesn't really help you. So going back to our case, what's our differential diagnosis at this point? A clinical presentation of acute onset headache, fever, and symptoms of meningeal irritation along with stiff neck and photophobia, is most concerning for meningitis. When considering meningitis, it is helpful to break it down further into two categories, acute bacterial meningitis and aseptic meningitis, which includes viral meningitis. Other diseases to consider, although less likely in this patient with no focal neurologic findings, are a focal infection of the central nervous system, such as a brain abscess, epidural empyema, or subdural empyema. One critical non-infectious diagnosis always to keep in mind is subarachnoid hemorrhage. As described previously, acute bacterial meningitis is a medical emergency with an overall mortality around 25%. Mortality rate is even higher in patients with pneumococcal meningitis. The most common bacterial causes of meningitis in this patient's age group, patient being greater than 50 years old, include strep pneumonia, which is the most common cause of meningitis in adults overall, followed by Neisseria meningitidis and Listeria monocytogenes. Haemophilus influenza has become an exceedingly rare cause of meningitis in adults because of the widespread use of the H-influenza type B vaccine, although it still can be seen in adults with predisposing factors such as cerebrospinal fluid leak, recent neurosurgery, trauma, or mastoiditis. Common bacteria that cause meningitis in specific age groups and population are displayed in table 14.1. Now let's take a look at that table. For predisposing factor being age 16 to 50 years old, the most common bacterial pathogens are strep pneumonia and Neisseria meningitidis. As you have patients that are older, greater than 50 years old, or that are alcoholics, not only do you have the same two pathogens, strep pneumo and Neisseria, but now you have to add Listeria monocytogenes and aerobic gram-negative bacilli. For patients that are immunocompromised, such as those with HIV or on immunosuppressive medications, you still have strep pneumo and Neisseria as well as Listeria, as well as the gram-negative bacilli. Basilar skull fracture patients, most susceptible to strep pneumo, H. influenzae, and group A strep. If a patient is post-neurosurgery, has a uh, cerebrospinal shunt, or had a penetrating head trauma, staph aureus, 
coagulase negative stems, aerobic gram negative bacilli, including Pseudomonas and Propionibacterium acnes, are the more common organisms to find. So remember how we were breaking down the differential diagnosis between acute bacterial meningitis and aseptic meningitis? Well, we just talked a little bit about the bacterial acute bacterial meningitis part. Now let's talk about the aseptic meningitis part. Aseptic meningitis is a term used to categorize any meningitis that has a negative CSF bacterial gram stain and culture. The differential diagnosis is comprised of a broad range of both infectious and non-infectious etiologies, many of which can lead to an acute clinical picture that very closely resembles acute bacterial meningitis. We have Table 14.2 that reviews many of the etiologies of aseptic meningitis. Viruses are the most common cause of aseptic meningitis. Coxsackie virus, echoviruses, and human enteroviruses, all are which are members of the enterovirus group of viruses, are the most frequent causes of viral meningitis. The other less common causes of viral meningitis are HIV, HSV type 1 and 2, with type 2 being a little more frequent than type 1, varicella zoster virus, or VZV, mumps, adenovirus, lymphocytic choriomeningitis virus, cytomegalovirus, CMV, and Epstein-Barr virus. Not going over the whole list in the chart, but other pathogens include mycobacterium tuberculosis, treponema pallidum or syphilis, Borrelia burgdorferi, Lyme disease, neoplasms such as certain lymphomas, leukemias, even including certain solid tumors, could be another cause of non-infectious fever is drug-induced meningitis, frequently seen with non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, as well as certain antibiotics such as trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole. Another category of non-infectious uh, meningitis, you can see with systemic lupus erythematosus, sarcoidosis, and Bichette's disease. Now let's take a break for a couple of uh, clinical pearls. A basic science clinical pearl is that once bacteria enter the subarachnoid space, they are able to rapidly multiply because of decreased host defenses in the CSF, specifically a decreased level of complement and immunoglobulins. This prevents effective opsonization of encapsulated bacteria, which is the first necessary step in phagocytosis. Another clinical pearl is that enteroviruses are the leading recognizable cause of aseptic meningitis in both adults and children. Enteroviruses infections occur worldwide more frequently in the summer and fall, but can occur year-round in tropical areas. Now, earlier, we mentioned the words meningitis and encephalitis. How do we clinically distinguish meningitis from encephalitis? And is this distinction important? Well, meningitis refers to inflammation of the leptomeninges, which surround the brain and spinal cord, whereas encephalitis is the inflammation of the brain parenchyma itself. Although there is considerable overlap in the clinical presentation, patients with encephalitis more often have altered mental status as the primary feature early in the disease course, with personality changes, speech deficits, or other focal neurologic findings, such as
such as motor or sensory deficits. In bacterial meningitis, headache and signs of meningeal irritation tend to predominate early, but as the disease progresses, a decreased level of consciousness occurs in greater than 75% of patients and can vary from lethargy to coma. Seizures and focal neurologic deficits are also possible findings in a patient with bacterial meningitis, but would be atypical of viral meningitis, which is again the most common cause of aseptic meningitis. Many patients with encephalitis also have evidence of meningitis, and this entity is known as meningoencephalitis. So although there can be significant overlap in the clinical presentation of the above entities, reminding yourself that these disease processes are two separate entities remains paramount during both evaluation and management of these patients, as the list of pathogens that have a predilection to cause meningitis actually differs from the list that causes encephalitis. So going back to our patient, now that we suspect the patient has meningitis, what is the most critical diagnostic test that should be performed as soon as possible? Well, unless contraindicated, Every patient with suspected meningitis should have a lumbar puncture, or LP, with documentation of the opening pressure performed as soon as possible. Now, a clinical pearl for you is that the importance of an opening pressure is really rarely do viral etiologies of meningitis contribute to increased CSF opening pressures. So a normal opening pressure makes it less likely that it is truly bacterial meningitis. Bacterial meningitis tends to really cause inflammation and cause that opening pressure to elevate. Now, once we do the lumbar puncture, get our opening pressure, and get some CSF, what cerebrospinal fluid studies should we perform? The CSF should be sent for gram stain, culture, cell count with differential, glucose, and protein. Consideration for rapid diagnostic tests may also be considered. More about that uh, in a later discussion. If a viral etiology is suspected, especially based on the results of the initial CSF profile, polymerase chain reaction, or PCR, and antibody testing should be performed on the CSF. Additional studies should be performed based on the clinical picture. Now, should we get brain imaging always before an LP? In certain patients, brain imaging with either computed tomography or CT scanning, which is usually more readily available, or magnetic resonance imaging, or MRI, should be performed before an LP to rule out mass effects, which indicates brain shifting, caused by a space-occupying lesion or brain edema. This is recommended because the presence of mass effect increases the risk of herniation from an LP. And in Table 14.3, it lists the indications for head imaging prior to an LP. And the clinical pearl here is brain imaging should be performed before LP in the following situations. New onset seizure, patients with an immunocompromised state such as HIV or on immunosuppressive medications, patients that have a history of space-occupying CNS lesions, those patients with focal neurologic deficits or papilledema on exam, those that are severely impaired in terms of consciousness, or those that are older than 60. If your patient doesn't fall into that, those categories, they may not need that uh, head imaging prior to LP. Another clinical pearl for you 
is that over 90% of patients with bacterial meningitis have some degree of elevated intracranial pressure, or ICP, which can lead to the dreaded complication of brain herniation. Significantly increased intracranial pressure can potentially lead to a reduced level of consciousness, papilledema, dilated, poorly reactive pupils, six nerve palsies, decerebrate posturing, and the Cushing reflex, which is bradycardia, hypertension, and irregular breathing. Now, the important question comes up, should we start empiric antibiotics? If so, which antibiotics would be most appropriate? When bacterial meningitis is suspected, empiric intravenous antibiotics should be administered as soon as possible after two sets of blood cultures are drawn and the lumbar puncture is performed. Bacterial meningitis has a high mortality rate and timely administration of antibiotics improves outcomes. Now, if an LP must be delayed while waiting brain imaging, antibiotics should be administered before the patient undergoes the diagnostic exams. While the administration of antibiotics a few hours prior to LP could affect the overall ability to culture bacterial organisms, the antibiotics should not have a significant impact on the CSF white blood cell count, glucose concentration, nor the gram stain results. The choice of empiric antibiotics while awaiting LP depends on the patient's clinical picture and risk factors for certain pathogens. Analyzing our patient, the patient is at risk for the two most common causes of community-acquired bacterial meningitis, strep pneumonia and Neisseria meningitidis. Because he is over 55 years old, he is also at risk for Listeria monocytogenes. Therefore, he should be empirically started on a third-generation cephalosporum, such as cefetaxime or ceftriaxone, plus vancomycin to cover resistant strep pneumo, and ampicillin to empirically treat for listeria, and all of these should be done intravenously. The third-generation cephalosporin will also treat the Neisseria meningitidis. In general, penicillin is highly active against penicillin-susceptible strains of strep pneumo, but never should be used as empiric therapy because there is more penicillin resistance in strep pneumo in the community than cephalosporin resistance. Because of the increasing prevalence of cephalosporin-resistant strep pneumo, as I mentioned earlier, the vancomycin was added while awaiting culture and susceptibility data. A basic science clinical pearl for you is that many antibiotics poorly penetrate the CNS or central nervous system of a patient with an intact blood-brain barrier. Bacterial meningitis increases the blood-brain barrier permeability and therefore allows for higher CSF concentration of antibiotics. Despite this, high doses of antibiotics are still required in order to achieve adequate therapeutic CSF antibiotic concentrations. Okay, when the patient's clinical picture suggests a possible encephalitis component, empiric intravenous acyclovir along with good hydration and IV fluids need to be initiated. Why do we need the good hydration and IV fluids? Well, that's to prevent the acyclovir-induced renal crystal buildup and the resultant acute kidney injury. Now, the next big question is, should we add glucocorticoids uh, during this initial period? Answer, absolutely. 
One of the clinical pearls we have is that glucocorticoids have been shown to improve survival and neurological outcomes in patients with strep pneumomeningitis. So dexamethasone should be started in every adult patient with suspected acute bacterial meningitis. And an adjunct to that clinical pearl is that the glucocorticoid administration must be given concomitantly or just prior to the first dose of intravenous antibiotics. Once you give your antibiotics, giving your glucocorticoids afterwards, not really helpful. And the glucocorticoids can be continued later if a diagnosis of strep pneumo is not established or it's found to be some other etiology. But giving it up front, very helpful. So now back to our case. The patient's laboratory testing reveals a peripheral white blood cell count of 18 with neutrophilic predominance. Results of other basic lab testings are within normal limits. Two sets of blood cultures are drawn. An LP is performed and the patient is started on empiric vancomycin, ceftriaxone, and ampicillin, along with the IV dexamethasone. The results of his CSF analysis are provided in Table 14.4. So let's look at some of these results. The patient's opening pressure was 260 millimeters of water. Normal reference is usually 60 to 200, so definitely elevated in this patient. Glucose was 20 milligrams per deciliter. The normal is usually 40 to 80, so definitely very low. Protein was 80 milligrams per liter. The reference range is usually 15 to 50, so definitely elevated protein. The white blood cell count was 1,500 cells per microliter, 98% of which were neutrophils, 2% were lymphocytes. And normally in the CSF, we would have anywhere from 0 to 5 cells, so this is definitely way increased. Red blood cell count, 3 cells per microliter. Again, normal range is 0 to 5 cells per microliter. So does this CSF profile help further narrow our differentials? Oh yes. This CSF profile is consistent with the diagnosis of bacterial meningitis. The classic CSF profile in bacterial meningitis includes an elevated opening pressure greater than 200 millimeters of water in 90% of cases, elevated WBC or pleocytosis with neutrophilic predominance, and in this case, patient had 98%. Normally, we see a low glucose, norm, and this patient we saw low glucose as well, and high protein, which the patient also had. The fluid is often found to be cloudy. Unfortunately, no single CSF finding can definitively distinguish between bacterial and aseptic meningitis. But the evaluation of the CSF, CSF findings in conjunction with the clinical picture should lead to a diagnosis. Now keep in mind, however, that in a patient with partially treated bacterial meningitis, the CSF profile can also show a picture similar to that of aseptic meningitis. So you have to be careful when your patient is pretreated with antibiotics. Now table 14.5 outlines the classic CSF findings in the various types of meningitis. Now I won't go over the whole table, you can look at that in the book, but I will point out a few highlights. Now the table compares bacterial meningitis, viral meningitis, fungal meningitis, tuberculous meningitis, and neoplastic meningitis. 
And the categories that we look across all of them is opening pressure. So if you look at opening pressure, the one that is usually normal is the viral meningitis. All the rest of the etiologies generally have increased opening pressure. The next category to look at is CSF WBCs. In this category, bacterial meningitis is where you usually see the highest number of cells per microliter, usually greater than a thousand. Sometimes, classically, they describe anywhere from five to ten thousand. All the rest can be lower numbers, less than a thousand, sometimes even less than 500. The next category we'll look at is percentage of PMNs, polymorphonuclear cells. And here again, we have a distinction that bacterial meningitis usually has greater than 80% PMNs, whereas all the rest usually have less than 50%. The next category is CSF glucose. Here, if you look across the board, pretty much all of them have less than 40 milligrams per deciliter, except the viral meningitis, signifying that viral meningitis really doesn't consume the glucose, whereas all the others have some consumption of glucose. That's why they're lower. The next category is CSF protein, where again, almost all of them have very high protein levels, except viral meningitis, which doesn't have very high protein. But when you get the chance, please do review table 14.5 to look at all the unique distinctions between the different uh, types of meningitis. Going back to our case, the patient CSF gram stain shows gram-positive cocci in pairs. With that bit of information, what is our presumptive diagnosis and how will we confirm the diagnosis? Well, gram-positive cocci in pairs signifies or indicates generally strep pneumomeningitis, which can be confirmed by culture. CSF bacterial cultures are positive in 80 to 90% of patients with bacterial meningitis, and the CSF gram stain reveals the organisms in 60 to 90% of cases. CSF gram stain in culture remains the gold standard in the evaluation of acute bacterial meningitis. But it is important to be aware that newer testing modalities do exist. The routine use of CSF bacterial antigen tests are not recommended. However, in patients with bacterial meningitis who have received prior antimicrobial therapy and may more likely have negative CSF cultures, one may consider sending for CSF rapid bacterial antigens for organisms such as H. influenza type B, strep pneumo, Neisseria meningitidis, E. coli, and or group B streptococcus. Similarly, broad-range PCR assays have been useful in certain settings as well. Now, another clinical pearl, if the CSF gram stain identifies organisms, the empiric antibiotics should be modified accordingly. Strep pneumo are gram-positive diplococci. Neisseria meningitidis show up in gram stain as a gram-negative diplococci. H. influenzae are small pleomorphic gram-negative cacobacilli, and the gram stain for listeria monocytogenes will reveal gram-positive rods. If you see that on your gram stain, you can narrow down your spectrum of antibiotics. Now going back to our case, CSF culture shows penicillin and cephalosporin-susceptible strep pneumo. 
the patient's antibiotics are subsequently narrowed to intravenous penicillin G. His symptoms gradually improve, and he is discharged with a two-week course of IV penicillin. What was his ultimate diagnosis? His ultimate diagnosis was acute bacterial meningitis caused by streptococcus pneumoniae. Some additional questions. Is there any role for a repeat LP? Well, in a patient with strep pneumomeningitis treated with dexamethasone who is not improving as expected, or if the pneumococcal isolate has a minimum inhibitory concentration or MIC greater than 2 for the cephalosporin, the cefotaxime or ceftriaxone, the LP should be repeated 36 to 48 hours after initiation of therapy to ensure the CSF is sterilized. Also, if there is persistent fever for more than eight days without another explanation, the LP also should be repeated. Because this patient's pneumococcal isolate was a sensitive organism and he improved with treatment, repeat LP is not indicated. Now going back to the case, upon completing his antibiotics, he returns to clinic with his wife. He reports resolution of his symptoms, but his wife is now concerned about getting meningitis. She brings up the question, should you provide or should you have provided chemoprophylaxis for his close contacts? The answer is, prophylaxis is not routinely indicated for the close contacts of patients with strep pneumonia meningitis. However, chemoprophylaxis is recommended for the close contacts of patients with meningitis caused by Neisseria meningitis or H. influenzae. Neisseria meningitis and H. influenzae are spread by droplets of oral pharyngeal secretions. So, close contacts are defined as household or daycare members who sleep or eat in the same dwelling as the index patient and therefore may have had contact with the secretions. Healthcare workers generally do not require chemoprophylaxis unless they had close contact with the patient's oral pharyngeal secretions, such as if they were to give mouth-to-mouth resuscitation or if they were involved in oral pharyngeal intubation. Close contacts of patients with Neisseria meningitis should receive chemoprophylaxis with a two-day regimen of rifampin. Note that pregnant women should not take rifampin. So, alternative regimens are a single dose of ciprofloxacin, but again, that really shouldn't be used during pregnancy, or one intramuscular dose of ceftriaxone. In areas with high prevalence of ciprofloxacin-resistant Neisseria meningitis, azithromycin is another option. Hemoprophylaxis of adult close contacts of patients with H. influenzae meningitis should be done only if the contact shares a household with the unvaccinated or immunocompromised child. Because there are no good alternatives for prevention of meningitis caused by H. influenzae, consultation with an infectious disease specialist is recommended when rifampin is contraindicated. The last clinical pearl here is colonization of the nasopharynx is the requisite first step in the pathogenesis of meningitis caused by the two most common cause of community-acquired bacterial meningitis, strep pneumo and Neisseria meningitis. Once in the bloodstream, the presence of a polysaccharide capsule helps these bacteria avoid phagocytosis 
and complement-mediated killing. Now we get to the beyond the pearls. Some of these beyond the pearl points are very key takeaways from the discussion above, and there's also a few points that weren't described above and may be of interest to you. Number one, bacterial meningitis is a medical emergency and lumbar puncture with initiation of empiric antibiotics should be performed as soon as possible. Number two, brain imaging prior to LP is only indicated in certain clinical situations. If indicated, empiric antibiotics should be given while awaiting the brain studies. Number three, in adults, the meningococcal conjugate vaccine should be given to adolescents 16 to 18 years old and in those with asplenia or complement deficiency. Certain local health departments also recommend the vaccine for those with HIV and for men who have sex with men as a result of recent outbreaks of meningococcal meningitis in New York City and Los Angeles. Number four, eosinophilic meningitis is a syndrome characterized by greater than 10 eosinophils per millimeter cubed in the CSF or eosinophils greater than 10% of the CSF lymphocytes. The differential diagnosis of eosinophilic meningitis includes parasitic diseases such as angiostrongylus, cystercicosis, schistosomiasis, and bayless ascariasis. Non-parasitic infections such as coccidiomycosis, cryptococcus, and non-infectious causes such as non-steroidal anti-inflammatories, antibiotics, ventriculoperitoneal shunts, and CNS leukemia lymphoma. Number five, although not widely used at this time, PCR assays for the diagnosis of bacterial meningitis have shown good sensitivity and specificity, usually greater than 98% for both, and further studies may prove this to be a useful test in the future. PCR assays have also been shown to aid in the diagnosis of meningitis caused by mycoplasma pneumoniae, which can mimic viral meningitis and encephalitis. Number six, petechiae, if identified in a patient with suspected infection with Neisseria meningitidis, should be biopsied in order to evaluate for the presence of the organisms. Meningococcemia may lead to a rash as a result of dermal seeding of organisms with resultant damage to the vascular endothelium. Number seven, in patients with systemic hyperglycemia, the CSF serum glucose ratio, rather than the absolute value of CSF glucose, should be used. A CSF to serum glucose ratio less than 0.6 is considered low, and a ratio less than 0.4 is highly suspicious for bacterial meningitis, although it can be seen in other disorders such as fungal, TB, sarcoid, and carcinomatosis meningitis. Number eight, administering bactericidal antibiotics in meningitis leads to the release of bacterial cell wall components that then activate macrophages and microglia to secrete tumor necrosis factor alpha, TNF-alpha. The rationale for giving glucocorticoids prior to antibiotics in bacterial meningitis is that the glucocorticoids inhibit the synthesis of TNF-alpha by these cells, but only if administered before the cells are activated by endotoxin. 
Number nine, if either penicillin, ampicillin, or chloramphenicol are used to treat a patient with Neisseria meningitidis or H. influenzae meningitis, then chemoprophylaxis should also be administered to the patient to completely eradicate nasopharyngeal colonization. These antibiotics, the penicillin, ampicillin, chloramphenicol, are not reliable at doing so. Number 10, many of the complications of bacterial meningitis are the result of the host immune response to the pathogen rather than by direct injury from the organism. As a result, CNS damage can continue even after antibiotics have sterilized the CSF. Number 11, CSF findings of lymphocytic pleocytosis with low glucose should prompt consideration of fungal or tuberculous meningitis, listeria meningoencephalitis, or non-infectious disorders such as sarcoid and malignancy. Number 12, some patients with listeria monocytogenes meningitis are prone to have seizures and focal deficits early in the course of infection, with some patients presenting with ataxia, cranial nerve palsies, or nystagmus secondary to rhomboencephalitis. Number 13, up to 40% of patients with varicella zoster meningitis do not present with a rash. Number 14, the CSF HSV PCR may be negative in the first 72 hours. So, if there still is a high suspicion, the LP should be repeated and retested for HSV PCR 1 and 2. Number 15, Outpatient treatment for bacterial meningitis may be appropriate in select cases who meet certain criteria. The criteria include satisfying multiple clinical and other criteria listed in the IDSA meningitis guidelines. Number 16. The range of treatment durations for pneumococcal meningitis typically is 10 to 14 days. Treatment for listerial meningitis is typically for 21 days. A minimum of four days of therapy is recommended for meningococcal meningitis. And lastly, patients with HIV infection and syphilis infection are more likely to progress toward advanced syphilitic disease and neurosyphilis. That concludes this chapter from Beyond the Pearls. Thank you for listening to the Beyond the Pearls podcast from Inside the Boards. This podcast is executive produced by Christopher Brightigan and Dr. Patrick Beeman. This podcast is intended for educational purposes only and is not medical advice. Ars longa, vita brevis.